you, you know the thing about I'm probably has heard in the long run we're all dead, but but they, they may not know the context because he's he's arguing about this very thing about you know gosh you you can't tell me what's going to happen over the course of the next year, but you're going to tell me you know oh, but over the next ten years um, because what was happening then was of course it was the Great Depression and. And they were uh, saying, don't worry. Yeah, meanwhile, people are dying. Yeah. Meanwhile, people are dying. Right, right, right. right, right. But don't worry. It'll be over. Um, and Cain said that it is, I can't remember the exact quote now, but, but essentially what he says is that it doesn't help me much to tell me during tempestuous seasons that the ocean will soon again be flat. In other mm. words, I'm trying to go you know, navigate uh, my ship through this storm. And you're, what should I do? What should I do? Well, the storm will eventually be over. Well, yeah, but by then I might be on the bottom of the ocean. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Texas Christian University PhD economics professor and cowboy economist John Harvey. The topic of our conversation is exchange rate determination. However, be forewarned that this episode is not an introduction, but a deep dive into the weeds of John's 2009 textbook, Currencies, Capital Flows, and Crises. For a proper introduction, You'll find links in the show notes to several good recommendations, including two MMT podcast episodes, John's August 2020 lecture with Modern Money Australia, a 2012 interview on the economics blog Naked Capitalism, and a layperson-friendly 2004 book by psychologist Thomas Oberlechner. This interview took three months of preparation. When I first read John's book, I only made it halfway through, and in all honesty, aside from the introduction, I got very little out of it. John's writing has nothing to do with it. It's simply an intense and completely, if you'll forgive the pun, foreign topic. Chapter two especially was impenetrable. It's a summary of the major exchange rate models in neoclassical economics and frankly made zero sense. I took a nap after every few paragraphs and watched videos on each type of model, but none of it felt relevant. John actually briefly goes over this chapter in his August 2020 lecture. I started the book over again and grew fascinated by a five-page section in chapter one called Post-Keynesian Economics. You'll find it on pages five to nine. The section is an introduction to post-Keynesianism and specifically how it contrasts with neoclassicism, the latter of which is currently mainstream economics. Without exaggeration, I read the section around 20 times and wrote pages of notes and questions, several of which I posted on the Facebook group Intro to MMT, which I wasn't then, but I am now a moderator of, and I recommend you join it. 
I spent the next two months diving into the basics of mainstream economics, starting with a 2019 paper expressing the common concern for the long-term fiscal sustainability of government spending and its corresponding debt and interest. I then read and interviewed the authors of a 2020 paper responding to it, German MMT economist Dirk Entz and Danish PhD candidate Oskar Voltsgaard. I also read a paper on historical time as recommended by Oscar and a 2006 paper by Scott Fulweiler. The interview also inspired a post where I break down the topic in detail. I then read Steve Keen's 2011 book, Debunking Economics Second Edition. I didn't understand much more than I did understand, but it was fascinating and enlightening nonetheless. It also provided excellent background for my next interview with UMKC PhD economics candidate Sam Levy, with whom I discussed the core assumptions of mainstream economics. Links to all of these papers, posts, and interviews can be found in the show notes. Before returning to John's book, I read several papers by John and Eileen Grable, plus the 2004 book by Oberlechner called The Psychology of the Foreign Exchange Market. I especially recommend Oberlechner's book as a layperson introduction to exchange rate determination. It's particularly easy to read and also comes highly recommended by John. As is made clear in Oberlechner's book, one of, if not the, most important determinant in the reality of exchange rates is group psychology. Finally, I read John's book straight through, beginning to end. This time, I was better prepared to distinguish between what to discard and what to focus on. Regarding chapter two, I now realize it's less that I didn't understand it and more that it's just not understandable. You would not lose much from skipping the chapter entirely. Its primary benefit is not to learn about foreign exchange, but to provide a benchmark for just how far off mainstream is from reality. The other major lesson I take from John's book is that people do not only want to trade, meaning purchase physical goods and services from a company in another country. Actual human beings want to accumulate financial assets and especially to profit in the short term. Neoclassical economics assumes people only want to purchase stuff, meaning trade. And the only reason they need and want to use money is in order to purchase that stuff. But in the world in which we actually live, only between 1.5 to 8% of all international transactions are for trade. The rest, well over 90%, is for purely financial assets. Despite this obvious contradiction by reality, mainstream economics assumes barter for every person in every country at all times. In fact, the assumption of barter is required in order for their assumption of balanced trade, either right now or soon to be, to also be true. And that assumption of balanced trade is required in order for their assumption of full employment in a single country, any country, to also be true. In other words, if the myth of barter is indeed a myth, and it is indeed a myth, then mainstream economics falls apart. John and I discussed this in part one, and it inspired me to write a post where I elaborate on the concept, a link to which can be found in the show notes. 
If we are to be a civilized society, then we must do what it takes to achieve full employment. Mainstream economics falsely assumes that doing nothing is the only possible avenue to achieving full employment. MMT demonstrates that full employment can only be attained and maintained in both good times and bad by a federally funded jobs guarantee, one paid for by a currency issuer with a freely floating currency and little to no debt in other currencies. Despite mainstream's protestations, full employment doesn't and can't happen naturally. It can only happen with the deliberate and ongoing intervention by the central government. And this can only happen when we stand up and make them do it. Two notes before we get started. First, a minor correction. I say that today's exchange rates are determined by the forecast for next week's exchange rates. I should have said tomorrow. Second, my full question list can be found in the show notes. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. And now, on to my conversation with John Harvey. I think that should be good. Um, uh, I'll share, let me share a, a little coronavirus story with you, okay? Yes. All right, so my younger my younger son, who's right over there, is probably going to be looking at me with nasty eyes when I say this story. <laughs> my 11-year-old, we take my 11-year-old to school. Perfectly. No, you know, we've been we've been pretty much quarantined since March. Yeah, I mean, we really have not gone out. We have not ordered food. We really have been pretty strict. Wow. So obviously we're not getting colds. We're not getting anything. Right. I mean, aside, you know, aside from the scare, being scared with shopping, whatever. So so we take him to school and uh, a few hours later, we, I get a call from the nurse. Andrew has thrown up. You need to pick him up. Oh, no. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, no, okay, I'll, I'll be right there and whatever. And, and I, you know, I was like, you know, it's not coronavirus. It doesn't sound like a coronavirus symptom. And she's like, no, I don't think so. Just, but, you know, to be safe. And I'm, yeah. oh, so I come. And it turns out the nurse said, and I said, you know, what happened? Because he seems perfectly normal. I mean, yeah. like, just perfectly normal. And she says, uh, actually, I don't know what happened, but he, I was told that he threw up. <laughs> and then later she said, actually, you know, actually what the teacher told me is that Andrew told the teacher that he threw up. And I was like, what? And then I said, Andrew, what happened? He said, I told the teacher that I threw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happened was, is he, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's actually just a guess, but I don't care because it's, it's a reasonable guess. Yeah. Is that it's, it's just one of his smart ass cartoons. That was one of the lines in the cartoon that he heard right. and that he just shared it to be ridiculous. <laughs> and so we had to have a talk of oh, wow. during coronavirus. You can't do that again. Right, <laughs> so. right, right. Now, yeah, there's certain things you can't say right now. Yeah. Like saying yeah. hi to your friend Jack at the airport. 
Uh, I don't get that. Oh, hi, Jack. At the airport. <laughs> okay. Okay. I had coronavirus in my mind. I got it. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah. I, I grew up more with that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, all right. All right. All right. Uh, um, well, let's get started. Anything, right. else, anything you want to tell me before? Uh, no, other than the fact that Melanie is now bringing me a cup of tea. Thank you very much. Ah, I meant to have it already ready, but apparently I didn't actually start it completely. So nice. Actually, you know what? I should have got a a glass of water. Actually, just hold on just a moment. Yeah, go ahead. All right, my tea is stirred. Okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, you know, thank you so much for doing this. I, I yeah, I did some serious reading on this. I read your book. Uh, it it was. You know, not going to lie. I mean, your writing has nothing to do with it. The subject matter is rough, especially well, especially chapter two. Chapter two especially, yes. oh my gosh, yeah. chapter two was was. You know, I don't even cover that one in class. The only reason it's there is in case somebody who wants to use the book also wants to cover some of the neoclassical stuff. So I thought, okay, I'll put it in there. But I don't have room for it anymore. I, when I first started teaching. Almost all my class was neoclassical. Then I would add a little bit of post-Keynesian stuff at the end. And then as I well, wrote the book, um, now I've got more post-Keynesian stuff than I can possibly fit in. So chapter two, you're, you're a good man. You're the first person to read that chapter since I wrote So <laughs> Okay. Well, actually, I mean, honestly, the, that, that chapter and uh, you remember I mentioned the five-section post-Keynesian introduction you have in, in the introduction to your book? Um, um, page yeah. five to nine, you have a post section called post-Keynesian yeah. economics. And it's an, basically an introduction to post-Keynesian versus, versus mm-hmm. mainstream. You know, you have right. the, uh, Y equals S plus I or what S yeah. plus C or whatever it is yeah. that, and you have that. And that really, <clears throat> that and chapter two actually really inspired me. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if inspiring is the, is the <laughs> right word, but it was just so profoundly difficult uh, oh. Not 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 the post Keynesian part, but that combined with chapter two was just so profoundly. I just couldn't get my head around it that yeah. I dove into. I read Steve Keen's book. I interviewed uh, Dirk and uh, Dirk Entz. Oh uh, yeah, I saw and, that. Uh, oh, you still okay? Right. And and uh, and on their paper that responds to a mainstream criticism of MMT with you know long term fiscal sustainability. Yeah. And I interviewed Sam Levy on mainstream assumptions. Like I, I read, uh, I read the first three chapters of your contending perspective books, uh, yeah. with, you know, up to mainstream and stuff. So it, it really, even though it was incredibly difficult, it set me off to finally get my head around the, the basics of, of mainstream. So right. in a sense it was good. So anyway, well, yeah, and that's really a hell of a lot to take on because they don't really stop and explain it anywhere nice and neatly because to them it's just economics. I mean, you know, so they don't really, I don't know, if you've been raised Catholic, for example, then you don't necessarily stop and explain what Catholicism is. You just grew up with it. Um, yeah, and, right. you know, water for food. mass and, you know, sacraments and so forth. And if you go to Catholic school, they stop and tell you what it is. But, but yeah, the neoclassicals, it's hard to get a grip on it. It's also a very big school of thought. Uh, a school of thought of one person, you can, you know, safely say, well, that school of thought believes, you know, X, Y, and Z because there's only one person. Um, but the bigger it gets, the more variation you've got. So uh, long way of saying, boy, you sure took on a hell of a lot on your own. Uh, well, I mean, thank you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm glad I did in a way, but, but it, 
I, I keep saying this. There's only so far you can dive into a fantasy world before you go crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. so you have to be, I have to Sam was one of the things that Sam ended telling me was, you, you know, be care, choose carefully what you decide to look into. Like he suggested, instead of diving headlong, consider like reading criticisms of models, uh, you know, that's sort oh, yeah. of touching on it and stuff. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I feel, I, I, I just don't think, I think what I learned was, I did not grasp how much of a fantasy world it was, and I didn't want to believe it. I think that's what it boils down yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I give talks on it, I feel like I'm lying. Because, ah. you know, people out there have to think, well, that can't be true. You know, so they, they can't really not have financial sectors in their models. That's impossible. And right. it's true. So. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's move on. Uh, uh, John, thank you so much for coming on again. It was uh, I'm I'm really happy with how our previous interview turned out, and I have uh, faith this one is going to turn out well as well. Uh, I think I'm just going to dive in. Uh, yeah. I'm going to give background and whatever in the introduction. Um, so let's just get right to it. So, all right. Um, first thing is first. Today is a very important day in the history of exchange rate determination. Could you please, <laughs> could you please tell us? Well, you know, and it's funny because on Facebook, I'm a member of a number of, of wargaming groups. Uh, and everyone was like, are you going to play a Battle of the Bulge game today? Because today was the first day of the Battle of the Bulge in 1944. Uh, and I actually thought of an economic, you know, you, you had mentioned to me before we got together that, you know, I, I I should just say something about the Battle of the Bulge ahead of time, because when, when Jeff initially emailed me, I said, OK, well, you know, that's Battle of the Bulge Day, right? I mean, doesn't your family celebrate Battle of the Bulge Day? <laughs> but um, uh, I, as I was thinking about it uh, and Jeff said, well, of course, you're going to start with talking about the Battle of the Bulge. I thought, well, I think I have an MMT connection uh, for the Battle of the Bulge. Okay. Uh, and that is this. Okay, now, of course, the background is with the Germans. It's, it's 1944, uh, December of 44. The war is going to end in May of 45. The Russians are easily in Poland if they're not already in, in uh, eastern parts of Germany at that point. So it, it's over. Uh, but Hitler figures, I know, if I can split the American and, and British forces, uh, maybe they'll fight with each other and, and he's going to go up and ch- capture Antwerp, their major port. Uh, well, it and let's do this in the middle of winter without air superiority uh, and very little fuel. Um, well, it, it didn't work. Um, so that got me to thinking about, uh, you know, of course, Patton plays a big role in the end. And they take a lot of liberties in the movie, Patton. But it is true that his intelligence officers did figure out, hey, the Germans are up to something. Um, and they were south of the Battle of the Bulge. And so he set his people to work on, okay, figure out contingency plans for if we have to suddenly stop our attack and turn north. And, you know, and, and so that, that turned out to be a big deal. So which then reminded me of uh, the Patton has this famous quote about, um, oh, static fortifications being a monument to the, uh, uh, it, you know, idiocy of mankind or something like that. In other words, you always bypass static fortifications. Right? And he was referring to the Maginot Line, which has become a term that people use for, yeah, you think you're protected, but you're really not. And how, the what it, line? The Maginot Line. The French built a line, you know, after what the Franco-Prussian War and World War One, the French decided, yeah, we don't want the Germans invading again. So they built this elaborate system of fortifications from the Swiss border uh, on up to, well, about the Ardennes, which is where the Battle of the Bulge takes place, to try to stop the Germans from coming in. They also had like half the population of Germany. So they were really worried they really couldn't last a, a war for very long. 
so they built these fortifications. Well, the Germans just went around them. Is, is what uh, you know uh, Patton was making a point about. But the but the thing is, the French only stopped the fortifications because they ran out of money. They were going to build them to the coast. Actually, they were going to build them to Belgium and, and depend on Belgium to build their own fortifications. And, and the point is that the Germans did go around the fortifications. They would have been extremely expensive, uh, you know, militarily to attack. They were, you know, really elaborate fortifications. And um, so the Germans avoided them. The National Line did what it was supposed to do. They didn't attack there. Problem was, and, and I don't have an answer to this. I'm only going to raise a question here. But did they really run out of resources? Or do they run out of money? I would, yeah. Be, yeah, very curious to know. You know, was this a problem actually of the French not understanding MMT, uh, and, and could have prevented you know being defeated in six weeks by the Germans uh, in, in May of 1940 or not? Uh, so I don't know. So there's something for the for the listeners to go out and look up themselves on the internet. How did the French finance the Maginot Line? And I guarantee you're not going to get a very good answer because no one understands MMT, so they're not going to put it in the right context. But it'd be interesting to have a look. So anyway, that <laughs> so was that, a strange connection between the Battle of the Bulge and, and economics and the idea that, hey, if the French had had the fortifications all the way, at least to Belgium, then maybe World War II wouldn't have played out anything like we have right now. And they say they stopped because they ran out of money. But was mm. that really run out of resources or was it just run out of money because we know that the money they could create themselves? That's interesting. Right. Okay. That, so, yeah, that's my exploration into that. So I, I battle of the bulges is it, is that the basically the beginning of the end of the war? Actually, the beginning of the end is going to be on the Russian front. Uh, the the okay. Russians, yeah, I mean the Russians. Um, I'll tell you the big thing that D Day did, uh, and I'm rewatching ba- Band of Brothers right now. I couldn't think of anything else to watch. I'll, I'll rewatch mm-hmm. that. Um, and they go on about you know D Day being the beginning of the end for Germany. No, that that happened. You know, at Stalingrad, at Kursk. Um, and I mean, by the time the Allies landed in uh, in Normandy, or the, the Western Allies, the, the Soviets were already in Poland. I mean, it was it was over. But this is what the huge difference was made. A, it certainly ended the war faster. But B, it meant that the Soviets didn't like. Uh, oh my goodness, we must continue rolling forward all the way to France just to make sure that all the Germans are gone, because you know, as far forward as the Soviets went, they're like, yeah, we're not backing up. And so we end up with Europeans split down the middle uh, after World War II because the Soviet bloc is holding on to you know, East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, and so forth. Well, what would have prevented them from, say, taking all of Germany and, or you know, going down into Austria, France, Belgium, you know, the low countries? Uh, so that, it did make a huge difference to post-World War II history. Uh, it didn't beat the Germans. The Germans okay. were really beat. Um, okay, well, well, yeah. an, an economist is my primary source on World War II history, so that that says something <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I'll um, tell you, I'm sitting here amongst all my 3D uh, printer created tanks and so forth, so perhaps it's appropriate. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, all right, all right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> all right, so my, I commit that that will be in, in, integrated into the title. Um, right. Okay, my next my next question, my first question about your book. Um, it's not it's not even really a question, but whatever. Before discovering MMT, I never followed or read economics, about economics. And before discovering your work, I never followed or read or even sort of thought about foreign exchange. And in my ignorance, I think coupled with how simplistically I think it's portrayed in the news, like you hear, you know, China traded lots of stuff with the United States. You know, that doesn't really tell you much. And so I thought that foreign exchange was only the trade of physical stuff and services. Uh, you know, that's what I thought it was. And I th- thought this trade only occurred or mostly occurred 
between central governments. But then just the first, I mean, the inside cover of your book sort of blew my mind. Like I was like, we got to do a two-hour interview just about this inside cover. Ah. Um, Because it was like, you know, the very existence of currency exchange and of and exchange rates at all implies that governments are not involved, or at least substantially not involved, because governments don't need their own money. Uh-huh. So that implies that companies are, you know, that are doing a lot or much or most or whatever of that exchange. So a company that wants stuff in one country needs the currency of the company that is in the country that they want to buy stuff from. So they have to get their money before they can do a transaction with that company. So I, you know, this isn't really a question, but it's just the opening pages of your book I found really enlightening. And I wonder if, is this, you know, I, I, I have a feeling that my ignorance and it does now reading your book, I really feel like that's probably what a lot of the public sees, right? what what thinks of it. Let me think about it this way. Um, that, that ultimately a factory in Ohio that's selling stuff to people in another country has to pay their workers in dollars, ultimately. All right. So, um, and they have to pay their, you know, uh, uh, their uh, uh, owners, their, their stockholders in, in dollars. So if somebody in Germany wants to buy something from the American company, and of course, all the currency trade is going to, is going to take place at the level of the bank. Uh, so the, the German, let, let's say that somebody's buying a Ford, all right? Uh, and they'll say that there are no Ford factories in Europe, which is not true, but, um, so they're going to buy a Ford in, in Germany. So they have to get hold of dollars, uh, to then, you know, buy, you know, pay for these in Detroit in dollars. And why does Detroit care? Because Detroit would rather have dollars because they have to, they, all their bills are due in dollars. Now it can get really complicated because anyone who has traveled, uh, to a, to a developing country in particular will find out. Hey, they'll just take dollars uh, because you know the dollar is actually a more stable currency than you know what you might find in, in many developing economies. So there are some exceptions, but for by and large, what you're saying is right. Uh, that the private sector, well, it doesn't have its own money even domestically. Uh, but if you now need foreign money, you're going to have to trade some of the domestic stuff in exchange for the foreign stuff in order to buy something in another country because ultimately all their bills are in their currency. So they need their currency in exchange. Okay, there you go. Um, The next question. Mm. uh, The trading of goods and services, as you say in your book, as you have said many times now, uh, is is, is a very little amount of what actually goes on internationally as far as transactions internationally. It's one, like maybe 1.5 to 8% of all transactions internationally is the trading of physical goods and services. So the rest of it, more than 90% is the trading of financial assets. And on page two in your book, you actually quote uh, a survey by the BIS banking something, Uh, something. Bank for International Settlements. Okay. A survey from 2005 that says that the average transactions every day in the entire world is $1.5 trillion. And that, that is around 40 times the, the amount of the value of the physical and services that are traded. Right. And in the show notes, and I'm sorry, I didn't pass this to you in advance. Uh, in the show notes, I'm putting a link to a 2019 tweet from Scott Fallweiler that refers to an interview. And in that interview, they say that more than $5 trillion or an average of $5 trillion every day in settlements happens in the Federal Reserve System. 
So, and, and there's actually a paper, which I unfortunately, I don't recall which, that Scott Folar paper where he says it might actually be between five and 20 trillion every day in the Federal Reserve System and settlements happens. And I don't understand how, I don't know, if, first of all, if these numbers are comparable to begin with, but the fact that it's $1.5 trillion for the whole planet, but that it's, only, but that it's $5 trillion for just the United States that seems to be something is off either with my understanding of what you're saying or the numbers are off or, or whatever it is that that, that right. difference seems quite striking. No, I, I um, you know, and of course, uh, Jeff had shared all these questions with me beforehand. And so I have a whole page of statistics uh, where I was looking up to try to figure out um, exactly how to explain this. And I actually, actually, if I may, just I forgot one thing, which is that data, the BIS surveys, obviously 15 years ago. And the five trillion is much closer to right now, so that might right, be right. In fact, what I looked up was right now the daily. Uh, now, the Bank for International Settlements does this study only once every three years because it's so complicated, and they only test April. And I don't know why April, but apparently they think it's representative of the entire year. Uh, so the last BIS Bank for International Settlements survey of the currency market came up with six point six trillion dollars of daily foreign currency trade. And then I looked up the Federal Reserve's, uh, their, their daily clearinghouse transactions were $111 trillion. So these are, these are still numbers along the lines of what you're talking about. Uh, all foreign exchange trade was 6.6, but just the United States in with the Fed clearinghouse was $111. Um, Wait, well, on what, in what time frame? Uh, um, these are both 2019 in a single day. Single day? $100 trillion every single day. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and six point six trillion every day for the currency market, you know, like a hundred trillion. That's right of clearinghouse transactions. And and here's the problem: um, when we start thinking about things like, uh, and I jotted down a few numbers here. Um, let's see, what U.S. GDP in 2018 was twenty one trillion. That doesn't mean that there were only twenty one trillion dollars of the transactions in 2018. It means there were there were there were. $21 trillion worth of final transactions. So for example, uh, if you bought a new car, it only counts that. It doesn't count when Ford bought the steel. It doesn't uh. count when the steel company bought you know, the, the, the raw materials. So there's all these transactions that take place before that. And in order to prevent double counting, because then you're like, well, wait a minute, how much is the car really worth? Is it worth the final selling price? Or is it mm -hmm. worth the final selling price plus all this other stuff? And presumably, all this other stuff is already included in the price. So, as a consequence, although there were many more transactions, uh, so they don't count the previous transactions. So, with the, what the Fed is looking at is every single transaction, not just the final one. So that's part of the problem. Uh, and and to some extent, uh, now first of all, trade is simply a smaller percentage. In fact, I worked that out too. Where have I got that, John? Oh, that world trade as a as a percentage of GDP. Is of world GDP is 18%. So around 18% of all final transactions are uh, international trade. But then if you're going to expand that GDP to not just be the final transaction, but to include all the intermediate ones, well, then yes, you can end up with, well, gosh, that doesn't seem like there's a lot of transactions. Um, you know, lot, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, of, of exchange rate transactions relative to domestic ones. That's because the domestic ones are counting everything. Uh, they are double counting things because when, when I bought um, meat this afternoon at Kroger's in order to make fajitas, which is what we do all the time here in Texas. Um, mm. Actually, it's the first time I've ever done it. Uh, but 
Uh, I'm not counting. I'm only counting my purchase of the stake. I'm not counting, you know, GDP does not count when Kroger bought it from a farmer, when the farmer bought feed for the cow or, or whatever like that. So okay. that may well be, I, I couldn't come up with anything definitive, but it may well be simply that, that the transactions that we're talking about with the Fed are every transaction. Okay. All right. Fair enough. That's at least getting getting closer yeah. to, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, next question, totally unrelated. Um, and I really like this next question, by the way, I've been looking forward to this one. I have honestly been looking forward to this one as well because I I learned a lot. Uh, this was this was where this was like sort of the heart of what I learned from the PK, the yeah. post Keynesian introduction section. Um, okay, so regarding a single nation, talking just about a single nation, which is which is what I as you know someone, um, I'm I'm approaching three years of studying MMT, and so this is the first foray out of the United out of the domestic space. So. Yeah. A major assumption of mainstream economics is that full employment is here now or soon will be. A critical assumption underlying that is that people, households, are insatiable and that that means that they will spend every dollar of their income on consumer goods and services. And that because every household does that and you know they're not thinking at all, they, they, they know that there will never be a bad problem to have. So they don't want to save anything. So that maximizes aggregate demand for the whole country, total demand for the whole now, country. And if I may interject real quickly, they will save if you offer them interest. But right, they, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the so, bank only offer interest, though, if they think they can loan that money back out. So the bottom line is still what you say, every penny gets spent. Every penny gets spent as right. long as, because they have no thoughts or of themselves, the only people who change their behavior is banks. Yeah. So that maximizes aggregate demand, which companies, which means that companies have a lot, can sell stuff and always need to hire more people. And then which causes full employment. A critical assumption underlying that is that spending, and this is that, this is where it really switches from a domestic understanding to an international understanding. The assumption underlying that is that all of that spending stays within that country. So all of that spending happens at companies in that country, because if a single dollar of that spending more leaves the country, then it enters it back. Then that means that f- that total demand is reduced by that amount, which puts less demand on those companies so they can sell less and therefore are threatening to not hire as many people or fire people. This is why balanced trade is so critical because that makes it such that it guarantees that the amount of money leaving the country is always exactly the same as coming back in the country. Right. So balanced trade is here is the assumption is, is that balanced trade is here now or soon will be because that creates a self makes each country a self-contained hermetically sealed bubble. And because if that's not the case, then mainstream falls apart. And this is why you call it one. And this, when I realized this, I was like just a huge light bulb. This is why you, why you call balanced the assumption of balanced trade one of the legs by which the full employment assumption is maintained. So, could you please elaborate on this connection? Yeah. And can you also, what are those other legs as well? Well, yeah, I'm really excited to expand on this because it it, it fits in so well to the discussion of exchange rates. Because the, the, they don't simply assume balanced trade, they assume something in another part of the economy that causes balanced trade, if you see what I'm saying. So they don't simply assume it away. Uh, they say, well, if we don't have balanced trade, then guess what adjusts to give us balanced trade? The exchange rate. So huh? ex- 
Yeah, and the exchange rate, because their model of exchange rates is based entirely on the idea that the primary driver is the sale of goods and services. And I, let me back up here and say, okay, look, there's, there's two basic transactions we can undertake internationally. I can buy a foreign good or service, or I can buy a foreign financial asset. The mainstream view assumes that the financial asset part is incredibly unimportant. It's like white noise that what's really driving the price are the international demands for goods and services, all right? And this is analogous, actually, to the spending of households is just a robot machine, and the only thing that actually controls it is the banks and the interest rate. Yeah, that they already want to spend all the money anyway. It just changes where it gets spent. Well, and this is why what you were talking about earlier, that the actual volume of daily currency transactions is much, much, much lower than the actual volume of world trade on a daily basis, which means that actually most of the money is not being used for trade. And I, 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 but, let, but let me finish the, the first thought. I probably shouldn't have gone there yet. Um, so let's say that let, let's assume that they're right, that the only reason people buy foreign currency is to buy a foreign um, good or service. Mm. So if the U.S. has a trade deficit to the U.K., this means that there are more Americans wanting to buy pounds then there are Brits wanting to buy dollars. Because remember, the only reason we want to buy dollars or pounds is because we want to have their stuff. And if the U.S. has a trade deficit, then by definition, there are fewer uh, Brits wanting to buy American goods and services and therefore dollars than there are Americans wanting to buy the pound. So what's going to happen to the pound? The pound appreciates. If we have a, a, a trade deficit implies that there's an excess supply of the currency of the trade deficit nation, and excess demand for the currency of the trade surplus nation. Everyone's dying to get pounds because, boy, everyone wants a cricket bat. Um, mm -hmm. And so, therefore, the pound depreciates. And how long will it appreciate? Until we have balanced trade again. Mm -hmm. so, so this is why, in, in, in my opinion, this is why, and, and it, I don't know that much of this is conscious. There's a lot of self-selection that goes on becoming an economist being willing to believe these things under a certain sound like a cult, but being willing to believe these things. And clearly I was, I mean, I, I you know, was fine with a lot of it. I just assumed it was going to get better after I get to grad school. Um, so this is why it is so important for them to explain exchange rates as being a function of goods and services and why it is then also of, of buying goods and services of, of, of international trade and not of financial flows because financial flows are actually at least 90% of the market, at least. So what do you do about that? Well, uh, that's just white noise. Or, yeah, but in the long run, the financial flows don't matter. Uh, it's really the trade flows that matter. Uh, and so the way they maintain the assumption of, or the way they make sure there's a balanced trade everywhere is by assuming that the only thing that drives currency prices is the purchases of goods and services and not financial assets. That's interesting. It's like that's actually like the monetary theory of production thing. So, monetary theory of production is that people, you know, MCM prime. You, yeah. you start with money and you want more money. But this is sort of analogous to that, where it's you, people are they're assuming that they're starting. They're, the only reason that you want foreign currency is because you want foreign stuff. Right. It's kind of um, another barter thing again. You know that mm. we're assuming a barter world. That really, what they want is stuff. That money's not. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that the financial considerations are, are are not there at all. And of course, that's the whole shift in the sort of post-Keynesian exchange rate theory. Uh, no, that's not what drives. Leaving ninety percent out of the market out turns out to be a mistake. Um, mm -hmm. That we should indeed be modeling 
our explanation of currency prices on what drives financial flows. Now, if the world changes and it's not financial flows anymore, well, then we should change the model again. But the way the world works right now, it's absolutely financial flows. So I don't know if that, if I need to summarize that or not, but yeah, the, the, the well, way, me, yeah. So let me see if I understand. So number one, they, they assume balanced trade. Uh, I mean, what underlies balanced trade is they assume that the only reason that people want money is because they want goods and services from another country. They yes. do not care about financial assets from another country. Yes. Um, was there another leg that I missed? No, no, that's absolutely right. And that therefore leads to the conclusion that if my country has a trade deficit, don't worry, my currency will depreciate and I won't have one anymore. Um, and, you know, that, that's been the driving force behind, and I, you mentioned that the MMT or, or the Modern Money Australia thing, when I, when I read through this uh, international economics textbook by a neoclassical, and he kept finishing every chapter with, well, that one doesn't work. That one doesn't uh -huh. work. So, well, uh -huh. none of them work because they all boil down to that thing about the goods and services. And it's, it's not true. Okay. That, yeah, make, that makes sense. Okay. So uh, a brief follow-up about that. There's something to the effect, and I'm, I don't remember this exactly, but there's something to the effect of that the assumption of balanced trade also means that developing countries or less powerful countries or something don't have as much to worry about? Yes. I, I meant to follow up on that because you made that comment. Uh, you made a comment earlier that, that yeah, uh, gosh, you know, uh, you know, Colombia has a huge trade deficit. I don't know if they do or not, but yet you, well, I don't, you know, then what do you hear from the developed world? Well, I don't worry about it. it it'll fix itself. Uh, and so when in fact, what it's doing is it's causing unemployment uh, and um, dependency on the rest of the world. So yes, I think that is part of the story too. I, I don't know that it's intentional. I, I've never been much of a conspiracy theorist, um, but you can also see where, boy, but this body of thought sure does serve to, to you know, solidify the power positions of people in the world already. Um, so, and I will say this, there aren't a lot of, of, of well-funded think tanks on Marxist economics. But there's a bunch of them on libertarian economics, and you know, yeah, well, yeah, you often hear, oh, well, well, there's a there's a there's a rich guy behind MMT. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Every single rich guy on the planet, except for that one rich guy, right. is behind the other school of thought. Right. right, right. Um, okay, I have a follow up on that later yeah. as well. Um, uh, I'm sorry, were you done with that though? Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, Next question. One of the most important to talk. Actually, I should say I read uh, Oberlechner's book. Oh, uh, I haven't. You've done more than I have. <laughs> it was really good. It was really good and very understandable. There was just totally, it's a, a very layperson accessible book. Um, the only thing I was surprised at is that it's like, why was it a foreign exchange book? It seems like applicable to any traitor. Well, <laughs> I actually want to talk. I'm actually curious to ask him that. That's absolutely right. And I'll mention who Oberlechner is after you ask your question, because I think it'll make more sense then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Did you, did you happen to catch the uh, cartoon that I tweeted today on? Uh, uh, I, 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 I'll put it in the show. Actually, if you want to take a brief look, if you can, if you happen yeah. to have a computer accessible, um, I tagged you and it's very, very appropriate for this question. Mentions. That, that's me. Let's see. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. I've shown this one in class. Oh, uh, yeah. I've never seen it before. <laughs> so if you want to. All right. So I'll ask this question. and That could be part of the context. Uh, that That's just like perfect when I saw that. Um, okay. So one of the most important determinants of exchange rates is group psychology. Yeah. Um, there's a great moment in your book where it talks about how the 
the most important determinant for today's exchange rates is the forecast for next week's or whatever time frame, next week's exchange rate. And that has nothing to do with the actual value of next week's exchange rate, which is so mind-twisting. So the idea that your forecast of next week affects next week's actual rate is almost entirely an illusion. And so the time next week rolls around, you no longer care about those actual results anymore because you're making forecasts for, you know, going forward and counting your money then. So in other words, expectations are self-fulfilling prophecies and expectations create the future. So mainstream and neoclassical primarily takes the situation and looks, you know, after the situation happens and they compare the expectations against the actual values of what happened next week. Right. And which assumes it's completely not useful because number one, it pretends that the result is not, is not affected by the expectation. Right. It pretends the result is unaffected by the expectation. And this is basically logical time where post Keynesian is historical time. It conversely, it suggests that maybe next time we could predict that actual. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and number th- uh, three, it pretends, and I, 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 there's a better way of saying this, but as if flipping five heads in a row on a, with a coin makes it more likely that you're going to flip ta- five tails in a row next time. Yeah. And then finally, it just it completely distracts you from living in the now. To actually analyze those things like that, just it takes you away from actually just living your life. So, uh, so post Keynesian as an alternative focuses exclusively on how those expectations are created. So yeah. can, you please, can you please elaborate on that? Because that's Absolutely. just really fascinating. Well, I'll back up a little bit uh, for, you know, because the dealers themselves, the ones who are actually making decisions, they have a pretty good idea of what's really going on. And they don't have a very high opinion of uh, neoclassical economics, actually. So they're not being guided by that. They're, they're a totally different group. Um, the neoclassicals themselves are, are looking at that group and, and, and what you described about this is exactly right. They are imagining that the forecast and the outcome are independent of one another. And this took a long time to figure out. You know, Keynes says in, in the preface to the general theory, it's not the new ideas that are hard. It's escaping from the old ones. Um, that's absolutely right. But, uh, but, but slowly over time, I, I figured out from a, an article that Paul Davidson had written. He's like, look, they are acting as if, we're talking about forecasting the roll of two dice. And, you know, the average roll of two dice is seven. Uh, so, you know, maybe next time it's going to be a 12. Maybe next time it's going to be, you know, a, a three. But on average, not only is seven the most common result, but the average result is seven of two six-sided dice. So the neoclassicals are viewing the currency prices as being driven by some set of variables that they refer to as the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the dice rolling. Meanwhile, the forecasts, which of course are made before the dice roll takes place, are then compared to the actual dice roll. And the reason to compare them is to determine whether or not the, the, the people who are making the forecasts are rational or not. Because if these people are rational, they should always predict seven. So, and if these people are irrational, then they should predict, you know, something higher or lower than seven. But the thing is that, you know, if you have two six-sided dice and you roll them over and over and over, even not knowing math, you can eventually kind of well, you have to have some uh, understanding of math. I guess statistics. Um, you, you're going to realize that guessing two every time, boy, uh, except for a few instances, I was too low. I guess I should raise my estimate. 
I'm going to try three now. Boy, except for a very few instances, that was too low. And you keep adjusting until finally, hey, it's seven. And uh, if you're in there to make a profit, then the stupid people will be driven out and the smart people will work this out. So again, the whole reason for thinking about this as being the default, i.e., we should compare the forecast to the actual outcome, is coming from neoclassical economics. It's coming from the idea that the exchange rate is driven by a separate process and that the, the, the goal in studying the forecast is to determine whether or not people are rational. It's not to determine what the exchange rate is going to be because they're mm -hmm. obviously independent of one another in uh, neoclassical economics. And, so, it's, and it's basically that because of, you know, implying the dice roll, implying that you have all the information to begin with and probabilistic sure. certainty, that you should be able to make that prediction perfectly last week because you have all the information or at least, you yeah. know, with probable. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. and it's easy to test. It's very easy to test because now, of course, they don't have a seven out there, but what they do test is how far off were, pe were people right on average? We could take a year's worth of daily currency data and plug in the actual exchange rates versus what the prediction had been a week before and check to see, hey, were the predictions wrong randomly? In which case, okay, they were, they were rational. They don't have to be right. They just have to be wrong without a pattern, if you see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Because if we guess seven every time, we're not going to be right every time. Because actually only, I'm sorry, I know all these sort of things, but it's, it's from wargaming. Uh, only uh -huh. six out of the 36 possible combinations of two six-sided dice turns out to be a seven. But six out of 36 is the most common. So we're not asking to be right. We're asking you, uh, are you, are you at least wrong without a pattern? And guess what? They found over and over and over that people were wrong with a pattern. Um, but so let's step away from that for a minute, though. So then you get the post-Keynesian view. And it, it, honestly, I feel like this would be the person's view on the street if you just asked them how the stock market worked or something like that. You know, well, uh, if all the dealers and this I always have to explain it this way in class. Um, if this classroom right now is the community of currency dealers on the planet, and all of you net, you know, on average, believe that the uh, euro is going to appreciate by next week, what are you going to do today? Um, you know, are you going to wait till next week? Or are you going to place your bet today? You're going to buy the euro today. I'm going to buy it today. And then what's going to happen to the euro today when you do that? What's going to appreciate? So, you know, and, and, and there it is. So, the, the, the empirical studies I did a long time ago, uh, where I got some data for forecast data, I didn't compare the forecast to the actual outcome. I compared the forecast of next week to what happened tomorrow. Um, I didn't quite make it instantaneous, uh, but you know, is there a high statistical correlation between what the forecast was and several other variables and what it actually became tomorrow? And, and there absolutely was. Um, does this prove anything? No, but it is evidence in support of, of the view that what's going on here is the forecast is driving the rate, which therefore, and this is what you were getting to, which therefore says, aha, so if we want to understand the exchange rate, we need to understand how people make forecasts uh, because that's what's driving the exchange rate. Since the vast majority of currency, um, uh, of currency trade is in order to buy financial assets somewhere else, and you buy financial assets in anticipation of, of, of capital gain, then we need to understand how people anticipate things. We need to understand how they forecast things. And economics had almost nothing to say on that. I ended up looking towards the psychological literature. There is some stuff nowadays in the um, mainstream, uh, but they still haven't. It's kind of like, it's so frustrating. It's like, whoa, yes, that's the right direction. 
but you uh. stopped. You stopped. What the hell? It's like watching a horror movie and you're like, hey, that's right. Don't go into the basement. Yeah. And then, you know, then, oh, well, what the hell? And they go down to the basement. <laughs> uh, there's there's an interesting thing in Oberlechner's book, which is he says oh, that. Oh, let me, yeah, let me interject there because I never said who he was. Um, and and I, I should have there. Uh, so in order to try to figure out these forecasts, I'm going to to Cameron and Tversky, these two uh, famous um, uh psychologists who worked on decision-making and looked at how they thought it. And then I found something by this guy named o- Thomas Oberlechner. And I thought, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for all my life. Um, that Oberlechner <laughs> is a Harvard PhD in psychology and he's fascinated by currency markets. So he actually does these um, well-designed, it's things I could never do because I have no background in this, but things I always wanted to know. These really well-designed studies of currency dealers, interviewing them, talking about what they think about the world and so forth. And uh, he's, he wrote a couple of articles on it. He wrote a book on it that, that, that you have read. And then the, then the stupid jerk decided to become a dean. Uh, as I said, I emailed him. I said, what are you doing? Anybody could be a dean, but nobody else can do the research you're doing. But okay, so 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 that's how I this- actually thought he died. <laughs> oh no, I, hope I actually not. thought he died. No, I, I looked online for his name and I wrote his email and something and bounced back. And then I looked, some Oberlechner guy died. So I'm glad to hear that he's that he's, that he's still alive. <laughs> Last I checked, I know he's younger than me, and I, I'll be I'll be 60 in January. Uh, so mm. presumably he's not dead. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, I interrupted, but I wanted to make sure that uh, people understood exactly why his name was coming up. Sure. Uh, he says something very interesting in his book, which is that, you know, mainstream assumes that you have perfect information, that people have perfect information. And he point bring, makes a very good point in his book that perfect information is awful. Yeah. You don't have time to look at all the information. You're, you won't live your life if you look at all the information. So if, all the, and especially if it's mainstream, you know, predicting the future information. So perfect information is not necessarily a good thing, which is, I found very interesting. And, 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 you know, I guess then going to Keynes, it also doesn't exist. Um, it's simply not there. I mean, because the, you know, the the big distinction that Keynes makes is that, okay, even when the neoclassical view, um, they, they don't exactly assume that people know the future, but they know the future in a probabilistic sense. Well, like the dice. Um, they know how many sides there are to the dice. They know how many dice there are. They might not know it's going to be a seven, but they know the probabilities. And Keynes, who was a mathematician, said, nah, it's not even like that. We, we simply don't know how many dice there are. Um, mm. and, and so when you don't have all the inputs, you can't possibly come up with one of those uh, uh, expected value forecasts. It's impossible. And so to Keynes, he's like, well, this is fascinating. People can never create a conclusive argument except at the roulette table, but then they have you drinking. That's why they have you drinking. So mm-hmm. uh, you, you can never create a conclusive argument. So why do people do anything at all? I mean, there, there, there's low risk things where, you know, I don't know whether the McRib is any good or not, but I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, and, you know, the, if I'm wrong, I just don't get the McRib next time. But when we're talking about the investment decision here, I mean, the physical investment decision, building a restaurant or whatever. He said, why would anybody who can't create a conclusive forecast spend the time and money in building a restaurant? And that's when he did the animal spirits thing. He said, well, people have us you know, homo sapiens have a spontaneous urge to action rather than inaction. What the hell? I can make it work. Um, so that ends up being his sort of psychological background for not only how physical investment works, but also how the stock market works. All right. And I don't know who said this, whether it was your book or his book, but a restaurant is very slow. You can't back out of that very easily. You yeah. can back out of a financial tra- transaction very easily. Right. 
Right. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and so, you know, and, and then in terms of the stock market, um, okay, but wouldn't it still pay you to do lots of research into the firm and so forth? And Keynes argued in 36, nah, it really doesn't. Um, it really much better, it's much easier to forecast uh, group psychology than it is to forecast how well, you know, some uh, startup company is going to do 10 years from now. Uh, and so he says the smart people, that's what they're doing. Uh, they are actually forecasting. They're trying to guess what everyone else is guessing, which implies that they already understand that the forecast creates the outcome. They're just trying to guess everybody else's guess. Uh, and Oh, yeah, the, the beauty contest thing, right? Yeah, yeah, the beauty contest, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, and, and there, there are absolutely instances where a stock or a currency uh, is appreciating in the market participants are saying there's no logical reason for this but so why do they stay in it well as long as it's going up i'm still making money all i got to do is keep my finger right above the enter key to sell uh and so as long as it's still going up i'm going to play the game and i'm going to be one of the ones to try to jump off the you know your musical chair uh you know you're reminding me of you're reminding me of warren mosler when he says uh i don't need to run faster than the bear i need to run faster than you yeah yeah and, and you know musical chairs is that uh if people are unfamiliar with it a game that teaches children about tragedy and loss uh because everyone's going to lose except for the last kid you know you got seven kids walking around six chairs while the music is playing i mean everyone knows somebody's going to lose i'm just not going to make it me so you know, Kane says, you know, hey, yeah, they play this game. And, and of course, he was a big stock market player himself. Um, and so this was more than just sort of his, his academic interest. It was also his practical interest. And he, and he built fortunes and lost fortunes. And but fortunately, built a fortune and then quit uh, you know, at, at the end. Anyway, I don't know what all directions I've gone there, but I'll, I'll stop. No, all good. All good. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, I will move on to my next question. There is something related coming up uh, in the one after this. Um, mainstream acknowledges that they do not have anything to say about exchange rate determination and lots of different things in the short run. Right. That their models pretty much are only for the long run. And all the models are wrong, but we'll, for, for just a moment, we're going to pretend that they're right. So let's yeah. say that all mainstream models about the long term are right. So mainstream can predict what will happen, say, 10 years from now, or whatever they define as long-term, but nothing sooner. So I have no clue of what is useful about that, because 10 years from now, 10 years right. in the future is always 10 years in the future. It's 10 <laughs> years from now. It's 10 years from a year from now. Yeah. It's 10 years from six years from now. So how is that not just anything except every man for himself – at all times, because what is 10 years from now useful in any sense? So, and if that's correct, I don't see how, you know, like you said before, mainstream is just, I mean, you didn't say these exact words, but propaganda for the status quo, which by definition only benefits those who are already in power. Yeah. Yeah. Those have already won the race. Um, I, okay. So I'm going to try to make an argument for them. Um, I think it's always a useful thing to do. It's like, okay, well, how can I make sense of this? Because, you know, I was initially trained as a neoclassical economist, uh, you know, especially undergrad, uh, and I loved economics. It was like, oh, my God, this is what – I started as a physics major because, honestly, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, and it turns out physics isn't the route to that, and it turns out that physics is also, uh, no offense to anybody, god-awful boring. Um, so then I went to political science, and I wanted to do international relations, and I really enjoyed political science – 
but I missed the modeling. I missed the formal modeling. So, and then I read economics. I took an economics class and, and, and that was that. And so okay, this is the example I use when I try to explain to students the context in which long run makes some sense. I'm a baseball manager and I need to set my lineup. Uh, I don't change my lineup every game. Well, gosh, you know, my shortstop who I have batting eighth actually hit a home run. Maybe my shortstop should be my cleanup hitter. No, 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 no. You, you know, you get to base it on, you know, obviously the, 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 the 113 pound shortstop isn't going to do that every game. Uh, and so maybe you do need the 200 pound guy uh, batting cleanup. So, you know, what a baseball manager generally does, obviously they make changes uh, in, depending on the pitching they're facing, but they set a lineup not to win this game, but to win the most games over the course of 162 you know, game season. Uh, so you're right. It's always 10 years off. But I can see a context in which, ah, but it does imply a policy that I should follow and I shouldn't stray, even if short term deviations make me think, oh, I should be, you know, gosh, this particular game, you know, my leadoff hitter actually didn't get a hit. So, you know, they're going to the bench. Um, so that, that's where they're, you know, to, to be generous, that's where they're coming from. Now, you're right. A lot of times when they do empirical studies, you know, they'll, they'll say in the classroom, the long run, without defining what the long run is, which fair enough, I, I don't have a problem with that. We, we all do that. But then when they actually get around to a situation where they have to put a calendar time on it because they're doing an empirical study, uh, purchasing power parity is one of the core exchange rate theories of neoclassical economics. And there are studies where it's said that it might take 100 years for it to play out. Well, I'm not sure at that point how useful that is. And, and Keynes said it best. Uh, you, you know the thing about, I probably everybody's heard, in the long run, we're all dead. But but they, they may not know the context because he's, he's arguing about this very thing, about, you know, gosh, you, you can't tell me what's going to happen over the course of the next year, but you're going to tell me, you know, oh, but over the next 10 years. Um, because what was happening then was, of course, it was the Great Depression. And uh, they were uh, saying, don't worry. Yeah, meanwhile, people are dying. Yeah. Meanwhile, people are dying. Right, 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 right. right. But don't worry, it'll be over. Um, and Keynes said that it is, well, I can't remember the exact quote now, but, but essentially what he says is that it doesn't help me much to tell me during tempestuous seasons that the ocean will soon again be flat. In other mm. words, I'm trying to go you know, navigate uh, my ship through this storm and you're, what should I do? What should I do? Well, the storm will eventually be over. Well, yeah, but by then I might be on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, so, you know, that, that doesn't really help me. A theory that, that, that he felt like they basically gave up on explaining anything that, well, let's put it this way. If I can't explain it, it must not be important or it must not be economics. Um, and, and that's kind of the attitude. Whereas I always thought, my God, I, I literally saw, and I, and I quoted the heck out of this poor guy, someone saying once that, well, if exchange rates are driven by Keynes's, um, oh, I don't know, beauty contest or whatever, then they're not really economics at all. What? Currency markets are not economics? That's the length to which you will go to uh, to not have to face the fact that your models can't explain this phenomenon is to deny that it's, it's like it's like a carpenter coming into your house, you know, and, and your desk is falling apart and they can't fix it. Well, I'm sorry, that's not carpentry. Um, so you're going to define carpentry as whatever happens to fit my skill set. Um, anyway, that's uh, that. Yeah, that, that that's where that's coming from. That um, I can see a reason for long run. I can see a logic, but. It helps not, in a special case, not most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There still must be something to guide uh, 
uh, okay, so so a baseball, let's go back to the baseball manager. We're not going to use that, but stick to your lineup for a while for the next six seasons. Mm. We're going to use it for the next 15, 20 games. And then you might, you know what? That wasn't working. Uh, we're going to shift it around a little bit. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, so, so Keynes' special case, this is basically like Keynes' special case that mainstream spends their entire lives in that special case. And it's, and it also reminds me of the circle of life where, where, you know, there's, there's always going to be stormy seas. There's a sequence of stormy seas and then calm seas and then stormy seas and then calm seas. It's just circle of life. But the stormy seas are, you know, the special case, right? The the, the opposite, opposite. The calm seas are the, are the special case. The stormy seas are normal life, but it's just which do you choose to focus on as, as, you know, you assume that is happening most of the time. Mainstream says that the calm seas happen most of the time. And, you know, the real world says that every, you know, the opposite. And Um, if I may interject right there, because you brought up something very interesting. Um, I have a, a, a good friend um, who was an Austrian economist, really, really nice, decent person. And somebody that I received, he, he made a post on Facebook one day about, you know, gosh, what's my career been for really? I said, you know what? I bring you up all the time. Uh, I said, you have made an impact on the way I think about economics. It's a really yeah. nice person. But he came to TCU to speak once um, and he sought me out because he knew I was a post-Keynesian. And he said, we have so much in common, the, the two schools of thought in terms of focusing on you know, sort of, uh, of, of dynamic uh, as opposed to static equilibrium situations and the concept of uncertainty. But he said, and this has always stuck with me. He said, it seems like you, you folks, you folks focus on the times when the market didn't work and we focus on the times when it did work. Mm. And I said, like, well, okay. I, you know, there's still things I disagree with, but all right. And, and, and actually this leads into, into your number, uh, question number seven a little bit, but mm. um, I thought to myself, but you know, when I'm trying to study, uh, you know, aerodynamics, I'm not going to focus on the 99 flights that made it from Chicago to Boston without a problem. I'm going to focus on the one that crashed. Um, and you know, so that, that's yeah. the question. So, but yeah, uh, that that what you're saying is, which one do you focus on? As we want to explain, when it works well is our default, and then if something doesn't work well, well, something something weird must have happened that has nothing to do with economics. Whereas the post-Keynesian and, and institutionalist and so forth view would be. Actually, we think it has systemic problems. We think that, you know, kind of like what's the airplane that we're finally allowing back in the air now? Um, but uh, there was a systemic problem. Uh, and so we're looking for the systemic problems. Right. Uh, uh, Minsky, uh, I believe, says something to the effect of if you don't, if you can't, ha- if your theory does not include the possibility of a depression, yeah. then it's not a valid theory. And the point yeah. is to prevent people from suffering, you know, prevent the, prevent the depression from happening and to get people out of that, you know, stop people from suffering as quickly as possible. Right. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So next question, number seven, and this relates back to a couple of other things that we were talking about. Um, so much time and energy in foreign exchange is spent on complete nonsense, analyzing complete, you know, meaningless charts of what the actual result was comparing. And I think that's related to the concept of chartism of just, you know, looking at old data, and, and thinking that five flips of the coin for being heads is going to mean that it's going to be tails next time, which is not true. Uh, they're analyzing random economic rules, which is, I believe, a, val- a valid thing. Uh, that's called the fundamentals, I believe is true. And pretending, so they're pretending that we can somehow predict the future. They're pretending that we that we don't affect the future, that, that we aren't affected by others or by the past. So 
on one hand, we can't predict the future. So what alternative is there in this world of trading? Because people have, you know, the whole point of trading is to predict the future, really. And how, so, so how can yeah. foreign exchange be anything but just a gigantic game? And so, but on the other hand, it seems that the vast majority of traders really do think that neo, the neoclassical fantasy world is real life. And so they spend most of their time on that. So perhaps, and, and I think it's reasonable speculation that a few people do get how it actually works and they use that information to basically manipulate and dominate everybody else who's spending their time on this fantasy world. So aside from the elite being less elite and aside from the mainstream economists being kicked to the curb, what, I, like, what would life be like in the foreign exchange market if every trader read and understood your work and Obelechner's work and Eileen Grable's work and they, you know, what what would their lives be like? Because it would be very different than, you know, what trading wouldn't stop. So what would happen? I actually think they don't believe neoclassical economics. They think it's a bunch of crap. Um, and I think uh, that they do understand how it really works. That that they are because, as a matter of fact, you know, early on when I was trying to understand currency, well, I see. Okay, so I got out of grad school in '87. Um, and the first paper I got published in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics was on direct foreign investment, the, the you know, process of establishing a multinational subsidiary in another country. And that's what I was all excited about. But one of my explanatory variables was exchange rates. And it turned out to be significant in, in a context that is not really, uh, doesn't really help us to explain why it was. But, but that, that made me interested in exchange rates. And so there was nothing pretty much nothing from the post-Keynesian perspective on exchange rates back then. Uh, and so I'm looking through the neoclassical stuff and trying to figure something out. And, and there were some suggestions and, and some brief forays from the post-Keynesian perspective. But I'll tell you a place I looked a lot, and that was to the actual um, – the, 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 for some reason at, at TCU, Texas Christian University, we had a book in the library on how to manage a foreign exchange desk. It's like, oh, my God, that's what I want to read. I want to read what do they think is going on. And I think they're right. I think they do know what's going on and that they couldn't care less about neoclassical theory. Um, and as a matter of fact, there's a really good, uh, there's been some really good neoclassical research. The problem is, it's just like I said a minute ago, it's like, oh my gosh, they're going the right direction. No, they stopped. Because they, they've done studies that look at dealers' preferences and so forth. And one of them was asking them, and I've used this one quite a bit. I think it was by a couple of, of folks named Menzi and Chin. And they asked them, what variables do you look at the most when you're building your forecast? Okay, that's something I want to know. That, that sounds very interesting to me. And they turned out to be, and I, I mean, I have these in the right order anymore, but uh, um, interest rates, unemployment, uh, trade balance, and inflation, I believe, were the big four. And then there were some things that, that came and went. They asked them specifically. These two researchers asked these currency dealers specifically about purchasing power parity, which is a theory I mentioned a minute ago that in one form or another is the core neoclassical view. And they called it academic jargon. That was the, the average. Is just a bunch of crap. They pay no attention to it. So I actually think that if they understood all this stuff, it wouldn't change anything about the way the market operated. What it would hopefully change is uh, that we would change the rules that we would say, oh, my God, uh, those of us who are analyzing it, uh, being the economists who then are passing on policy recommendations to the policymakers, 
would no longer be saying, oh, the free market's wonderful. What they're doing is absolutely helping you know, trade and employment and so forth. We'd be saying instead, oh my gosh, uh, this is creating bandwagons. It's creating uh, panics. It's creating periods of euphoria and we need to rein it in. Um, now, and, and let me mention this too, because you were talking about being able to predict the future. And the thing is, and I think I learned this from Davidson, I can't remember now, uh, but you know, it, it's like we're, and I'm gonna go back to aircraft design again. We can't predict when the plane's gonna get, and I know you were doing this for the neoclassicals, but I'm thinking about it from the post-Keynesian perspective, because then you say, well, you know, you can't predict, what are you gonna recommend to me? Well, I don't know when the plane's gonna get hit by lightning, but I know it can happen. So I need to build in ways to make sure that that's not gonna make the plane crash. I know it's at wind shear that used to be a, you know, there was a terrible plane crash after we moved here to Fort Worth. Um, I thought the plane was just taking off or just leaving Dallas Fort Worth airport and something to do with the air pressure. Well, they found a way to, to make sure that they know when that's going to happen so they can avoid it. So we knew it could happen. It doesn't mean we could, we could predict exactly when it did happen. So just having knowledge of the system is sufficient for us to be able to build rules and regulations that can prevent the possibilities that we can never predict exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I will say this, that, and I've had, I've had dealers in my class before, uh, not currency dealers, but, but people who are stock, you know, brokers. And I'm always very nervous because like, oh gosh, I hope they don't disagree with everything I say. And they're always like, oh yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, so, so they, they very much buy into it. Where they're not gonna buy in to the post-Keynesian view at the very end of the class when we get to policy and I say, so we shouldn't be letting them do that. Oh, oh. no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, so that, that would be my, my, my view on that, if that makes sense. So basically, so basically it's to influence policy makers because there are some people are, I mean, roughly speaking, some people are, know that the only way that they can benefit is if other people suffer. And well, so they don't, want, they don't want policy to be implemented that will yeah. prevent a lot of people from suffering. I don't think they view it that way, but yes. Um, I think they view it as they're really helping people. That they're, because, you know, that part of the whole thing they're buying into, the mechanism by which exchange rates are being driven and stock prices are being driven, no, they don't buy into that part. Um, but the idea that the market system has an invisible hand that works to everybody's benefit, mm -hmm. well, yeah, they buy into that part. Um, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay, all right. So, so next question. Uh, this is completely different. This is a this is basically a meta kind of a question. Yeah. Um, I am pretty sure that these things are not related, but since they're both just meta, yeah. I'm going to put them both together. Uh, so, number one. I have heard you say that you disagree with something related to MMT, but that it's not a huge aspect. So I'd like to ask you, I mean, obviously, in you know, your exchange rate determination, so I presume it has something to do with that. What is that? And, the, and, the, and then I'll just put this other thing out there as well. Uh, knowing that the book was written well over a decade ago, on page 72, you say...